0: I think it's safe to say that no one hypes like a politician. And then no one hypes like a 19th century American politician. So it shouldn't come as any surprise that on June 1st, 1865, with the Civil War over for only a few months now, Arizona Territorial Secretary Richard C. McCormick wrote a lengthy letter to the New York Tribune, laying out the state of the new territory in as many superlatives as he could bring to bear. For example, this little chestnut, "...the climate, considered either in its relation to health and longevity, or to agricultural and mining labor, is unrivaled in the world." "...disease is unknown, and the warmest suns of the Gila and Colorado River bottoms are less oppressive and enervating than those of the Middle States." End quote. I think we all can agree that, no matter how much we might enjoy Arizona personally, yeah, there was quite a bit of hyperbole going on there. But McCormick's letter is as good an overview as any of the conditions of the territory immediately following the war, and we can glean quite a bit from what he and others from this time have to say. And we shouldn't be surprised that a lot of their descriptions dwell particularly on that one great concern for every American thinking about coming West. What exactly was going on with all those natives? I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ The History of Arizona. Episode 54, A Quick Look Around. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we spent a lot of time following around Cochise and his rebel band of Apache, as well as the irregular force sent to stop him, despite having no money and no supplies. But what I want to do this week is zoom out our focus a bit and take a look at what Arizona looked like at the end of the Civil War. For that, I want to discuss the general makeup of the territory, the Anglo-American stance towards the Amerindians, while also finding some smaller details about life on the frontier. The best way I can think to do that is to use the words of those living here at the time and explore what we can glean from the accounts they left for us. And for that, McCormick's letter is a great source of information, as he basically gave the Tribune's readers a virtual tour of the territory while extolling its every virtue. Which means he also hides all the flaws, but we will get into that. The first thing we can really see in his letter is all the time he spends up front trying to impress what Arizona is and is not. Namely, McCormick is concerned that nobody thinks of Arizona as more than just the Gadsden Purchase, so he pushes back against this popular perception. We also see this in an excerpt from a history written by Joseph Fish around 1906, when he says, quote, In the early days of American occupation, Arizona was considered by all Americans an utterly barren and worthless waste of shifting sands and rock-ribbed mountains probably rich in minerals, but of no agricultural value whatsoever. End quote. Of course, being the hype man that he is, McCormick tries to convince everyone that Arizona has some of the best farming land at this side of Eden, saying, quote, Those who have asserted to the contrary have been either superficial and limited in their observations or willingly inaccurate in their statements. End quote. Now, McCormick, of course, takes things too far, extolling the new territory like it was a farmer's paradise. But when you think about it, in a way, Arizona is still fighting this very same perception to this day. As someone who recently took an out-of-state visitor to Flagstaff to show them that we actually have mountains and pine trees, I can attest that the image of the state as one large, hot, dry desert still lives. Turning to mining... While going on and on about the virtues of Pima County, McCormick also makes mention of the many operations happening there, and he takes care to especially talk about those silver mines from the Spanish period, which only kind of sort of existed. But here we find a mention of large-scale copper mining happening in Pima County as well, something that carries on to this very day. However, he also claims that some of the ores being found in these mines are 90% pure copper, And yeah, I I totally buy that. We also learned from his letter about some of the infrastructure at the time, specifically a highway, one of those toll roads we discussed back in episode 51, running between La Paz and Prescott, and connecting with another road coming in from San Bernardino, California. A company had been engaged by the legislature to dig wells and establish feed stations along this highway to make the trip just a bit easier. McCormick also mentions that a telegraph line connecting Prescott to Los Angeles is coming soon, though I honestly am not sure if he wasn't again just promising unicorns and rainbows. However, at this point, a weekly mail service between Prescott and Los Angeles and Santa Fe was actually in place. When it comes to population, he writes that the area around Prescott for up to 50 miles was populated with miners and ranchers and farmers. This is also borne out by early state historian Thomas Farish, who writes about Americans settling in places such as Skull Valley, west of Prescott, and the Williamson Valley, west of Paulden. McCormick also mentions Hardyville on the Upper Colorado, La Paz, and Tucson as thriving communities, which we have covered before. From McCormick, we also learn about several Mormon settlements that are getting close to Arizona, especially up at St. George in Utah and we will dive much more into those and the early Mormon influence in northern Arizona in a future episode. Now, Tucson, and really all of Pima County, is said to be almost exclusively populated by those of Hispanic descent, while Yuma County is said to be a mix between Hispanic and Anglo-American settlers. Prescott, meanwhile, is said to be almost completely inhabited by Americans. This may be a small point. But I can't skip over the fact that listing these racial makeups wasn't just for recording demographics. According to the prevailing attitudes at the time, saying Prescott was an almost exclusively white city was a selling point for future immigrants. At least, future white immigrants. It's also why I kind of look askew at McCormick's description of Prescott as resembling a town from northern New England. Indeed, at one point he says, quote, The white population of the territory is largely composed of industrious, intelligent, and enterprising persons. As you might guess, he doesn't really talk about how industrious, intelligent, and enterprising other races are. In a similar vein, Farish tells us that both Yuma and Tucson established civilian led vigilance committees, like those in San Francisco, tasked with keeping the worst of the riffraff out of their communities. And wouldn't you know it, the riffraff seemed to be the Mexicans who had fled north following the French invasion. Farish says these committees don't appear to have taken the law into their own hands, but their presence seems to have helped keep shiftless folks at bay. No comment on who those shiftless folks would be. But as a counterpoint to these claims of whites good, everyone else bad, Brigadier General James F. Rustling who was traveling across the country at the time and would later publish an account called Across America, gives us his impression of Arizona's white population. And it is not flattering. He wrote, quote, The other whites were mainly Arkansans and Texans, many of whom, no doubt, exiles from the East for their country's good. Of course, this was not a very favorable basis for a commonwealth, and the territory, it appeared, was about at a standstill. As evidenced of this, there was not a bank or banking house, or free school, or Protestant church, or missionary even, throughout the whole of Arizona." End quote. Farish also adds in something along these same lines, talking about those living in Yuma, quote, "...many of the settlers were of a worthless class. They knew how to drink and how to swear." And were not of that class which was termed good citizens. End quote. While Rustling in his account puts the territory's population at three to four thousand, an eighteen sixty six census shows a total of five thousand five hundred twenty six people living in Arizona, though that number doubtlessly excludes a whole lot of Amerindians. The largest chunk, around thirty eight percent, lived in Pima County with 1,612 living in Yavapai County, mostly around Prescott, and several hundred smattered across Mojave and Yuma counties. But back to McCormick's tour, we also learned that parts of Yavapai County, which remember takes up everything north of the Gila River and east of basically modern US-93, were still unexplored by white settlers. A good deal of that is toward the northeastern part of the territory, or the Greater Four Corners region. McCormick also points out that he is sure that more mineral wealth is sitting out there east of Prescott and Tucson, but has not been fully explored yet. And this statement is kind of prescient when you remember that the mines around Superior, Miami, and Globe won't get going until the 1870s. However, Americans were starting to fill in the gaps on the map. In 1865, a group left Prescott and heading even further east than King S. Woolsley's Ranch would become the first white settlers in what we know as the Verde Valley. Setting up a small community at the junction of the Verde River and West Clear Creek, just a smidge southeast of modern Camp Verde, this group of rugged individuals did what all frontiersmen in Arizona did. Namely, build a dam and irrigation ditch, build a fort, occasionally run into town, aka Prescott, for supplies, beg for protection from soldiers, and have run-in after runnin' with the natives. The same could be said for settlers who were moving into the lower San Pedro River Valley around the same time. True, they were dealing with a whole different branch of the Apache, but the story was pretty much the same. For those places that actually could be called towns, we have various descriptions coming in across different sources. Joseph Fish, for example, writes about the rough town of Tucson and how a judge was tasked with cleaning up the place. So, kind of like Sheriff Joe Arpaio more than a century later, this judge instituted a chain gang for those who were convicted by his court. Fish wrote, quote, in a short time, all the wild, rough characters who had ruled the town were employed in leveling its streets." End quote. After this punishment came into vogue, he writes that the town really began to flourish and quote, "...kid-gloved men, fresh from the eastern cities were there, full of ideas of plundering Arizona and going back to enjoy the results. Brawny, broad-shouldered stockmen and hardy, open-faced miners, representatives from a score of different nations. Indians scattered around and dogs without number made up the street scenes of Tucson, end quote. We also have a few accounts of Prescott from this time, including from one government visitor who declared it a thriving and delightful place, and that, quote, good order prevails to a greater extent than in any mining town I ever visited, end quote. A piece that appeared in the San Francisco Examiner read that there was only one or two respectable houses in the community, with only one real brick building, the offices of the Daily Miner newspaper. Most of the stores were wooden shanties, with one store made from adobe. After that, there were a couple of smaller traders, three or four saloons, a hotel, and a restaurant. And that was about it for businesses. There was also a wooden courthouse, no jail, and no church, but there was a building for the short-lived Arizona Historical Society, which apparently had shelves with a few books, local and foreign newspapers, magazines for farmers, and just a few samples of local minerals. But just to go back for a second, we've heard a couple times now about there being no churches. Farish tells us that there were no organized Protestant churches in the whole territory in 1866. Occasionally, services would be held by the chaplain at Fort Whipple, and presumably the chaplains at other forts too, but the only organized church in Arizona was the Catholic Church. Now, for all the problems we have listed before, there had been no regular priest in Arizona since the missions were abandoned in the 1840s, though there were visits from Santa Fe occasionally. In the mid-1860s, more serious attempts were made to establish a permanent Catholic presence again, especially in Tucson with its rich Catholic heritage. For example, in 1867, the Sisters of St. Joseph put up a school in Tucson, something that the community, regardless of the individual faith of the members, celebrated and actively donated toward. Of course, being a missionary in Arizona would continue to be a hard, dangerous life, especially considering how likely one was to meet their end by an Apache lance while traveling to visit converts. As one missionary summed up, quote, When I have to leave my house for a visit to the distant settlements of my missions, I write to my mother as if it were for the last time. End quote. But getting back to McCormick's survey, he makes sure to mention that along the Verde and Salt, or Salinas, rivers, one can find extensive ruins. No doubt he is talking about the Hohokam canals and mounds we discussed way back in episode 4. For his purposes, McCormick is especially interested in the canals, which means that agriculture is possible in the Salt River Valley, which in turn means more white settlement. From him we learned that the Salt River at the time, was roughly 80 to 120 feet wide and 2 to 4 feet deep with rapid clear water and a good growth of cottonwoods lining its banks. This, he said, is different from the Gila, which is slow and muddy. Of course, this wouldn't be Arizona history if we didn't turn our attention toward the myriad of native tribes living across the territory. The only reason McCormick mentions the Gila River is to talk about the Odom living along it, farming and raising a type of cotton from which they made clothing. Here also he starts talking about reservations. Specifically, he mentions that, oh yeah, most of the tribes are friendly towards Americans, calling out the Papagos, Pimas, Maricopas, Yavapais, Wallapais, and Mokis as all being equally friendly. If they were not already on a reservation, they soon would be, he claims. Now, it is true that some were already living on reservations. The Gila River Indian Community, home to the Akamel Odom and Maricopa, or Peeposh, was established in 1859. And, as we discussed in episode 51, the 75,000-acre Colorado River Reservation was established in 1864, though Congress didn't actually get around to funding it until 1867. Onto this reservation was gathered one group of Mojave, led by a chief named Irritaba. Irritaba was actually the Mojave chief that had gone to Washington, D.C. with Odom chief Antonio Azul in 1864, which I mentioned last week. According to Farish, he was so awed by the grandeur of the American capital that he used what influence he had to convince his people to move to the reservation. Yeah, it's more likely he probably weighed the odds and thought this was the best move for him and his people. The reservation would also become home to the Chemuevis, an unrelated tribe who speak a Shoshonian language. I'll also add that eventually this reservation would house some Hopi and Navajo as well, and be expanded to 268,691 acres. But this reservation suffered from problems similar to others, including the disaster at Bosque Redondo, namely lack of resources and disease. Whooping Cough killed 200 people in 1869, and by the next year, only 300 acres of the reservation were being cultivated. But the ultimate problems of this reservation is getting a little ahead of our story. Farish, whose multi-volume work on Arizona contains the letter from McCormick that I've been quoting, is quick to point out that the territorial secretary is a bit too optimistic in his views when it comes to the natives. For example, McCormick said that groups who took some minimal precautions were perfectly safe traveling through the territory. And though Farish admits that right after Iritabe convinced the Mojaves to move to the reservation, violence did drop... He disagreed with McCormick by saying it was actually still incredibly dangerous for a small party especially to travel between the Colorado and Prescott. In fact, in 1866, the superintendent for Indian affairs at La Paz, a man named G.W. Leahy, was killed on the road between Prescott and the Colorado River Reservation. By one account, Leahy had offended the natives he oversaw, but laughed off any warnings that they wanted to kill him. Because of his supreme confidence in himself, on that faithful trip to Prescott, he didn't take any guards, but only had one white companion. About ten miles south of Skull Valley, or near People's Valley, Leigh and his companion were jumped by his own wards, and their mingled bodies were discovered afterward. It is said that once news of this reached the reservation, there was a great celebration and feast that lasted for two days and two nights. However, there is another account by a man named Mike Burns, an Apache Mojave Indian raised by an American army officer, who gives a different spin on it. In Burns' telling, a number of high-ranking Mojave had been killed after being lured to Fort Mojave, so a decision was made to ambush the next white party that came talking about making a treaty. A group waited in ambush, and at one point heard Leahy call out that they shouldn't hurt his party because they were coming to make peace. Of course, all this did was confirm to the waiting natives that this was the group they were waiting for, and, well, that's how Leahy met his downfall. Either way, it doesn't sound like the Indians were all that friendly, as McCormick suggested. The hyperbolic territorial secretary also let his rhapsodizing get the better of him when it comes to the Apache, because he claimed in his letter to the Tribune that, thanks to frequent campaigning, the number of remaining hostile Apache had to be less than 1,000. And surely, if the soldiers would stick to it any day now, this minor inconvenience would be taken care of. Fersh says it best when he states, quote, in this, he was clearly mistaken. End quote. In a couple years, a large fight would break out between the white settlers and the Wallapai, which we will get to in a coming episode. And we, of course, are still decades away from being done with Cochise and Geronimo. After him. Speaking of the never-ending fight with the Apache, General John Sanford Mason, who I mentioned last week, had been made the military commander of the District of Arizona was ready to prosecute any war to bring them to heel. In October 1865, he gave the order that so many generals had before him, namely that all Apache were hostile, so every last man who was old enough to bear arms and had not surrendered was to be killed on sight. All women and children were to be unharmed but taken prisoner. All rancherias and possessions, unless they had value to the United States, were to be destroyed. Mason and his men started prosecuting his plan, and his vision for a day when the Apache would be on reservations that were provisioned and policed by the military. But as we know from our last episode, it's going to have very little effect, especially against the great chief, Cochise. Farish remarks that Mason's plan was essentially the same as more successful ones in coming years, but he lacked the resources to carry it out. As it was, Mason was removed from his post in the summer of 1866, and received a lot of ridicule from Arizonans as just another in a long line of military men unable to live up to their promises. Now, though it was mostly negative, public opinion of the Amerindians did vary. Many were of the same mindset as William H. Hardy, the founder of the port of Hardyville along the Upper Colorado River. After many close run-ins with the various tribes of the territory, he remarked, quote, "...when I had the advantage, I cared but little for an Indian. I looked upon them as upon wild animals. They are wild human beings, and when hostile are but little better than a wolf or bear. Killing makes good Indians of them." End quote. Others, however, were quick to blame soldiers and other ruffians for having a negative effect on the natives. Rustling, in his notes, says that most of the Natives were, quote, "...superb specimens of humanity, but all seemed corrupted and depraved by contact with the nobler white race." End quote. He continued, quote, "...the open and unblushing looseness of and licentiousness of the riffraff of Arizona City with these poor Indians was simply disgusting." and it is a disgrace to a Christian government to tolerate such orgies as frequently occur there, under the very shadow of its flag. Great blame attaches to the army in former years, for ever admitting these poor creatures within the precincts of the post there at all." You'll notice a common theme here of it not really being the Indians' fault, because they were less developed than the noble whites they encountered. Yeah, it couldn't possibly have anything to do with humans being humans when their territory is invaded. But whatever the root cause, the cycle of hostility just went on and on and on. And spoiler alert, don't count on it stopping anytime soon. Because I am a lover of minutia, just a couple more items to note. I tried to find a good place to shoehorn this detail into today's narrative, but... Since I couldn't, I'm just going to shove it in right here. In the account of Hardy, he who viewed the natives as no better than animals, in those days, wild game was everywhere to be found in Arizona. At certain places, he said, you could expect to see 200 to 300 deer or antelope at any given time. In other places, you could find large bands of elk, not to mention bears, either black or brown or a cross between the two. Then there were the mountain lions, wolves, innumerable coyotes, turkeys, and quail. Some good hunters could ride out of Prescott and return within days with enough game to fill a four-horse wagon, he says. However, Hardy laments that by the time he said that, most of this game had become scarce, and the hills were now populated with an overabundance of horses and cows. But I now want to spend our last few minutes together today relating the tale of an important first for the territory of Arizona, namely its first documented Christmas tree. We actually have an account of it thanks to Farish, and I consider it too much fun not to mention. So here goes. Though there is no definitive date for it, the tree went up around the time we are speaking of, so any December between 1865 and 1868. Farish, quoting another historian, says that the distinction of celebrating Christmas with the traditional tree goes to one J.N. Rodenberg. It appears that Rodenberg wanted to celebrate a traditional Christmas with a tree and all the pageantry and set to work making it happen. Part of that pageantry was to round up children for the festivities, which was the tradition at the time. Unfortunately, as this is a mining town on the edge of the frontier, Mr. Rodenberg could only find seven. Well, 13 if you count half a dozen who were slightly older than usual, but still pressed into service. Then he led a group of men into the woods to find the perfect tree for the occasion. And surprisingly, for how most of these stories go, they were able to go out, find a perfect fir tree, and return without any trouble from the natives. The tree was set up in Rodenberg's house, and he called on the community to come and decorate it. But once again, we run into the problem of being a mining town on the edge of the frontier without really any trimmings or frills to speak of. So they started to improvise. Some brown sugar was secured, and with the help of three black men from New Orleans, a type of sweet called blackjack was made to hang on the tree. Next, all the tallow candles that were available were rounded up and then tied to the branches with twine to keep them up. So, yeah, this is the era before fire codes. Ribbon was also needed to beautify the tree, which was provided once all the ladies of the community had scoured the bottom of their trunks for anything fancy that had managed to come out west with them. Finally, a number of men who were skilled with their hands carved out some crude toys and goods to add to the decorations. With all that taken care of, the committee in charge of this event took on its biggest challenge yet finding music to appropriately celebrate. A search was made of the entire community, and it was found that there was only one instrument available, a violin that was out of tune and missing a string. Even better is that the owner of the violin only knew how to play one tune, the Arkansas Traveler. If you've ever heard the children's song that goes, I'm bringing home a baby bumblebee, then you've heard the melody of The Arkansas Traveler. You also know why the committee impressed upon the violin's owner that he should really, literally change his tune. Or, at the very least, according to the account I have, quote, play something halfway through and then repeat it with a change of cadence, end quote. Finally, the day of the big celebration came. And this is the part in the movie where everyone gathers with the little tree they have cobbled together and Realize the true meaning of Christmas. Farish recounts, quote, Mr. Rodenberg says that electric bulbs may glow in many colors from the Christmas trees of the present day. Trained voices may chant the melodies. Diamonds and gilt-edged presents may ornament the garments. Children may devour the many-colored sweets that are run out by the ton. But that old blackjack was just as good. That old tree just as handsome. And above it all, there was the genuine and the devoted spirit around that old Christmas tree of long ago that cannot be duplicated. Because, he says, we did not mix the occasion then, as they do now, with discrimination and commercialism. We gave them all a run for their money. End quote. And fade to black. Roll credits. Since there is not much more to say after that perfect ending, we are going to leave it here this week. The main takeaway I hope you get is that Arizona is still very much the frontier. There's a lot still being worked out, and a lot still happening, and a lot more still to come. When we pick up next week, we will turn our attention back to politics as the territorial legislature gets back into session. We will watch as the territory loses a chunk to this growing place called Nevada and also as a revolving door of politicians transfer from one high office to another. Also, it's time to bid a final goodbye to that old promoter, the father of Arizona himself, Charles Debril Poston. I'm your host, David Rickhausen and you've been listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Goodbye.